What is good? We have a monster episode today at PH Podcast. We have Rob Jacobs, Corey Hobbs, and myself talking about Ericsson's model. If you're not familiar with that, it's a model to help design and optimize each one of your training sessions. Talking about focus, challenge, feedback, and cueing. The central theme, though, is how do we make each session as good as it possibly can be? We did the planning. We're working our ass off. How do we make this session amazing from start to finish and it comes down to organizing and structuring every detail as much as possible it's going to be a really good episode if you want to get all the resources the graphics the articles the modules that we suggest within the curriculum got to become a member of the ph curriculum this is going to be an amazing resource for you as a strength coach you're going to learn all the nuances behind being a great strength coach start to finish so get over to phpodcast.com sign up for the ph membership get access to all the resources associated with it all right let's get talking about erickson's model okay tim we got erickson's model on the agenda so just give us that brief background on what erickson's model is and why it's important so it's a framework it's a framework to really design your training session after the variables of exercise selection, sets, reps, rest, intensity. It gets now into the, the nuance of, okay, how hard should this be or the challenge, the level of focus necessary. You know, there is some things that are going to be mindless, like zone two cardio versus very intricate things like Olympic lifting or full speed sprinting. So what's the, what's the level of focus necessary? The feedback we need to give, whether it's, hey, I'm working with a personality type that likes direct, honest, there is a, another end of the spectrum of more subtle. And then there's large group dynamics, small individual one-on-one sessions, like yelling at the top of your lungs in a one-on-one is going to have a different effect in a larger group than it will in that personal training session. And then the final aspect is cueing, right? Looking at how do we cue certain exercises? And this was a model presented by Nick Winkleman in his book, Art of Movement, which really is focusing on the cueing aspect. But much like we talk, we'll talk about here in the future, Newell's model, which I got a lot from Matt Jordan in his course. It's looking at this as a model of framework to just be successful every day. The premise that we're going to just be good because we show up or we planned out or we're going to give great effort. You know, that's good until it's not. And we've been talking a lot this month about replicating success and putting performance at the forefront of not only the athletes, but for coaches, right? How do we optimize your ability to deliver our information, our program to make the best experience possible? So that, that is the foundational piece of Erickson's model. So as we're considering this, do you, how do you formulate it in terms of planning a mesocycle or a microcycle? How does that influence that planning? So it's going to fall largely on a training session, right? The, the, the frequency or the cadence of meetings, you know, we'll have a large plan for the annual chart or a macro cycle. And then it, and then it gets filtered down into all right, what are we doing this month with our training for a mesocycle and then a weekly meeting of what's our micro cycle. But then we get into the training session, right? And each one's going to be shorter, briefer, more to the point and what's more tangible based off that moment. Right. So big picture down to small granular, grains of sand that we're trying to find the nuance and really leveraging that. But then we start to look at inventorying of our coaches, right? So we talked last week off of the training versus education continuum slash, hey, where are coaches at and how do we give them some direct and 
really objective feedback. Now we can leverage that in looking at a model to say what is their current level or their function, you know, from this motivation incentive continuum or this knowledge and ability continuum, as well as the tools and resources we have and how that impacts our training session from planning. Now we look at it the day of, like, we have all this stuff, we have these coaches and they have this certain skill set and knowledge and they're motivated to do certain things. We can start to tease between the two. And then we look at what is the objective of the training session? The, hey, am I working speed and power? Am I working hypertrophy? I'm working muscle endurance. Like, that's important to know. And a lot of times we just take for granted because we see an inverted relationship between intensity and volume that if it's a higher, intense, higher intensity, we're working strength or power. And that's an assumption that we probably don't really fully grasp that unless we have some sort of conversation of that's the point that people might run the risk of going outside the context of what we're trying to do. And that, that I think is a really important foundational piece, whether you really leverage Erickson's model or you don't, or you get into this another framework of, of, well, you know, I want to get really specific on our feedback and cueing and looking at external versus internal cueing from Nick Winkleman or some of the other cueing art, cueing research out there. I think it gets back to a more fundamental question of, do you even really have an objective that's unified and agreed upon amongst your staff before you enter that session? And it starts to help answer a lot of questions, right? That can tell you personally a lot of conversations about will that or will that not help us get to this objective of the training session, right? Should we do foam roll? Should we do static stretching? Should we do a dynamic warm up? Should we do a very team oriented kind of connecting period, like, you know, clap it up kind of thing? Should we do a transition to the weight room this way? And all these questions are going to always going to be back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But if it gets back to a central conversation of, do I understand the objective of the workout or the training session? And I start to tease in between challenge, feedback, focus, cueing. And I start to break down, well, is that net positive towards the objective of the training session? Or is it kind of just noise or just a unnecessary or unrelated thing or potentially even counterproductive? And it just aligns you, it, it focuses you, it gets you to that point of that. And then you start to look at stations, like something that's going to require great, great focus and going to be really challenging. You might want to put the best coach in that position, something that requires less focus and less, less challenging. You might want to put the more inexper inexperienced coach there so they can be more successful just because there's more risk and there's more associated outcomes with things that are going to be harder or take more conscious effort. And how do you relay you know, like you set the objective with your staff. How do you get it relayed to the clients and athletes? Do you, have you run into any obstacles along that way? What have you found? Well, there's always going to be an element of what is necessary information, right? That I am up here explaining our workout and there's going to be a, a almost a, a distribution of people that are really vested and want to know all the nuance and then equal dovetail relationship with people who don't care. And wow. you're up there having this really high level thought process to that and having to essentially in that moment decide how important it is to dissect break down all of the nuance right so if i'm doing eight reps with a 4-0-X-O tempo that's 32 seconds of time and retention that's typically going to be this functional hypertrophy that leads to about this 75 to 85 percent intensity zone usually around six to eight reps etc 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 and that has a specific function and goal or it could just be like, 
you do this eight times, count four, count, I'm done way down, let's go. And I don't know if either's wrong. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the pundits that will say it's all about just work ethic and hard work, yeah, that, that's part of it. The other end of it is it's better to be informed and not informed, but there's an element of that could be at the expense of time served doing the actual thing that's going to make them better. There's going to be an element of people get anxious when you're overly explanatory. There's going to be an element of people get frustrated when you don't explain properly. And you're always having to tease between whether I'm talking too much or I'm talking too little. And I think there's a couple of litmuses here. We talked about this at our event we hosted last week in Muscle Mentorship of if they're starting to get distracted while you're talking, you're probably talking too long. If they start to do other things, you're probably lost a room and you need to either become more brief or say things with more authority that they respect you and want to listen to you. Because the reality of all of coaching is people are really quick to find out who's going to bring value to them, regardless if they have a lot of experience or a lot of other touch points. And they will start to tune you out relatively quickly. But if you speak with purpose and passion and meaning, no matter how long or how short, generally speaking, people will stop and listen to you. And you need to be must-see TV. And that's a power and authority that you can run wild with. And I, I will tell you, when I was at Army, one of the feedback I got from my direct supervisors, you're talking too long. Like, and the feedback I got from our players is like, we'd love to hear you talk. So I'm in a, a crossroads, right? I have my direct supervisor saying, you're wasting a lot of time and you're being really long-winded versus the other end of players and athletes saying, you do a really good job. Now, on one end of the spectrum, though, that could be hemorrhaging time. And if you look at it from the other lens, the more I talk, the less we work. Right. So we just keep talking and we'll have to do less of these crazy workouts that you're doing. So you almost have to be objective with what is the necessary time frame that you're talking or explaining or breaking down these things by these moments or these litmuses of like, are we actually getting through the workout in a period of time that was prescribed? Are we are we getting people distracted or disinterested in when we're talking? Are we really getting the output? Right. So if I spend eight minutes explaining how to do a certain exercise and that technique is crap, right? Based off the standards we talked about with movement quality. Well, then that probably wasn't a very good explanation. You know, the results of what we do matter. So if it's time well spent, you'll see that manifest into doing things correctly. And it comes down to just inventorying that, being objective and honest about that. You know, results generally matter in all these situations. And at the end, if we have a better platform from a program design, if we have a better execution, the net is going to be much more positive. It's funny that you mentioned some of those specific examples, literally something that I've, I've been working through here is like, there's always the same athletes who are asking like, Oh wait, can you show that to me again? Like I didn't quite get it, but you know, they're just stalling cause they don't want to do the workout. Yeah. Like I was always trying to do like, all right, so we got back squat four Oh exo tempo. They just couldn't quite get it. So all right, back squat four seconds down, go. Yeah, and so yeah. just trying to cut out the fluff as much as possible. Cause like, attention spans are getting shorter and shorter. So like the the faster we can get to it, the better it's going to be. The one thing I wanted to hit on was I think a lot of us are kind of doing this intuitively, right? So like we'll come in more explanation week one, we get to weeks three and four. It's like, all right, here's what we got. Does anyone need anything clarified? Yes, no. Boom. Get to it. You got any comments on that? Yeah. So one of the things I like to address with our staff is this isn't a fixed like high, high attention, high focus, high challenge, that everything has a different effect 
on certain weeks versus the other, right? One of the things is explicit versus implicit learning in terms of feedback, right? Implicit means it's more organic and natural. You just basically figure it out versus explicit is very coach inward. And I, I think there's a dynamic at play where you start to break down your relative necessary contribution to that. And if you have to explain what you're doing after four weeks of doing it, chances are you didn't do a good enough job explaining it on the front end, right? Mm -hmm. And the, the time spent was squandered in a way, right? You probably occupied a lot of time and it probably expended a lot of energy, but was that energy and time focused and directed in something net positive to performance, right? Does it correspond to them being a better football player is a very simple way to look at it. And if you're every single week have to get a full dissertation about what you're doing, it's probably overcomplicated. Over it's probably set up in a way that only really one person fully understands. It's set up in a way that's not replicated from one coach to the next. And I think a issue that you find a lot is if you were calling out sick or if you couldn't make it to work and the only person that can get that workout distributed to their athletes probably means that you didn't do a great enough job training your staff or preparing your staff or maybe you just not really well thought out and you're the only one who can do it on that given moment and it creates you as valuable right it's hard to replace you if you're the only person who can do it but the other thought is is that the best interests of all parties right the more people involved the less you have that luxury and as we break it down, if they're up there and they're overly explanatory because they either don't get a opportunity to talk in front of the group or they don't fully really understand it because there's only really one person who understands it, or even on the other end, it's, it's not landing because the athletes don't really fully grasp it and you did a poor job of inventorying their level of focus and their ability to handle challenging, challenging training and your feedback isn't really constructive or helpful and then their level of or just the queuing in general probably gets overly overly nuanced and not really well not very effective so there's a lot of dynamics at play but i very simply say it's like as you get from one week to the next your ability on to appraise or assess is based off of how redundant you need to be from the previous week or how much you need to circle back and re-explain or find other ways you know you did a good job when you have to say nothing on week four. Like, got to right. go. Like that, it's hard to really extrapolate that you are bringing more value from that. But truth is you are, right? You did an amazing job explaining it. They know the assignment. They know the objective. They know how hard they need to work. They know how much focus they need to do. They, they were giving appropriate cues and feedback as they went through the four weeks. So you, you look at the board and say, at this point, it's all about just putting in great effort. Any last questions? Let's go. That is a true test of a four-week training block from a setting up each day to be successful. And if you do that, man, like, you know, you're good. And you should be incredibly bored on week four from the athletes knowing that. But I would also come back and say you divert that, that energy that you were using to explain and justify what you're doing into encouraging and motivating. And, you know, the now you got this different hat on this as coach and that might be a more traditional sense of a coach with a whistle and yelling and screaming and clapping and all this other stuff you know that in itself is man that's a that's a, a power that you can 
I can take this hat off and I can put the cerebral coach hat on and it could be very effective there. And then, okay, now it's time to be week four. Like I'm going to put this hat on. Uh, maybe it's an image of a guy wearing a, a hoodie and a beanie in the middle of summer, you know, kind of thing. I don't know. Whatever you classify as the, the tough, hard-nosed, gritty coach, whatever, you know, that, that's your choice. But that's, that's the archetype that you're going to take on. And you are a chameleon of sorts from one week to the next based off of what your job really entails. That's a good point. I think as, as strength coaches, we definitely need to be able to uh, dive into that chameleon role for sure. One thing you mentioned was like that challenge, not challenge balance. Obviously that's a fine line and you might in a big group, you might have someone who's not challenged. Have you ever had any problems like getting that person on board? It's like, you're just not getting it. Doesn't want to be there. What have you done for that situation? Yeah, and I would also argue too the type A person personality that I would throw in the mix there. Like if it's not hard, they don't value it. Obviously, yeah, absolutely. And you know what I would say is you're never always going to be good in handling these dynamics of people disinterested or don't really see the value in it unless it's actually breaking their spine. I would come back and say that you're probably better in anticipating it. So in regards to that anticipation factor, I would break it down to, okay, if I was looking at this from the context of if I know that person's going to be on the front end of this, of like, hey, I'm not going to be interested in this unless it's really hard, maybe you need to start to focus on that and explain that beforehand. Like it, the warm-up set shouldn't be hard or this this transition from movement prep to the actual workout, you know, is going to be intentionally easy so we can build up recovery so we can get better during this period. Like, or you just explain, it's going to be hard here, hard here and hard there in between. I don't want to hear it. Or on the other person that you know is violently disinterested in everything that you're doing, maybe you make more of a focal point of making it interesting and engaging. And then, or you put them in a place where they can't be disinterested or disengaged, you know, and you've had those athletes and, I've always looked at it of hitting these situations from preparedness and that. And I got actually a question in an interview one time from Lane Kiffin when I interviewed at USC. And it was the odds are stacked against me. I, it wasn't like they wanted to hire another five foot eight white guy to come in there and help out with the program. And I get the point. Like I do. Like I don't have any pedigree in football and I don't have any real like I don't really have any clout in regards to size and presence and all that, right? I, I'm, I know I'm smart, I know I'm good, but it doesn't change the fact that the eye test and the, well, what, how do I know that you're gonna bring value to me based off of you don't even know what I'm experiencing? You know, that's, 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 a, that's an effect that a coach might have when they find a guy like me is interviewing for a position and how I got that far, God knows. But on the other note, my response was, I really don't know because it doesn't come up. And he gave me this look of, either is the most arrogant thing I've ever heard or you are an idiot. And either way, I couldn't distinguish it. And I was like, do you mind if I elaborate? And I was like, it hasn't come up because if it even comes close to that, I kick myself for not being prepared for that situation. And I look at every single time I get the opportunity to coach that I'm gonna do everything in my power to be prepared for that situation from the ability to demonstrate it, the ability to explain it, the ability to hold it to a high standard, the ability to troubleshoot if it's not working, the ability to go in there and say to that person, this matters to a greater extent than you probably understand in this moment and I will be able to push you to that. And no one's better at getting you to that outcome that you want of either making generational, 
generational wealth in the NFL or being really good right here at USC. And thankfully, that answer sufficed. And thankfully, I got the job. And to my credit, never had a situation where a kid confronted me or challenged me on something. And you know my size. You've been with me in a weight room. I'm easily overpowered and over just outmatched in every sense of the matter of the word of like being athletic or tough or big or imposing, you know, but I'm still able to get people to do things that they generally don't really fully want to do right away. And I know it's all coming pretense of, I'm not even going to throw a generic prescription of love. It's coming from, you asked me to do a job and I'm going to do that job to the best of my ability. And sometimes it's being direct and honest. Sometimes it's being, you know, supportive and enthusiastic. Sometimes it's just being like, not my goal, it's yours. Like, I don't understand why you argue with me on this. Yeah. It's coaching in a nutshell, right? Absolutely. So if you were to boil down this model into like, say like four bullets, what would, what would it be? We'll start off. Do you know how hard the workout's supposed to be? Right. And these are deload questions like the deload weeks or the low days. And, or if it is a high day, how hard does it have to be from start to finish? Or if it's a hard week, how hard does it have to be from start to finish? And that is where I would say probably step one, you know, is you have an idea and inventory of how challenging each day should be. And we all know that constantly maxing out and going full tilt every single day is a very unsustainable plan. And once we start to break down that we absolutely need to include some countermeasures like the, the yin to the yang of our training, how do I approach that? And how do I get out front of the athletes getting anxious and wondering why we're doing less on a certain day or not as much or why isn't as intense as it was the, the previous day or the previous week and just telling them that we adapt when we recover we have a, a overall plan that's going to get you better than what you started we have to take these days to help you that and you start to almost like subconsciously put that in their brain the day before like Man, this day is going insane. Like the the joke at Army we used to talk about on strongman days was that escalated quickly, right? And yeah. knowing that, thank God you got Saturday and Sunday off, right? I, I I could tell them, hey, you guys should take it easy based on how hard it is today. And I'm building that narrative. Like you got to take the weekend off, man. Like you got to come back on Monday ready to go. And you're just building it up into that. Like, wow, you are really struggling. <laughs> you know, we definitely need to get a rest day tomorrow. Like, you need to cut, recover. Like, you start to get really in instinctual about getting out in front of this. And the other part is, like, can you go the other direction? Can you go really hard? We got to turn that switch on, man. It's time to go. And you need to get out there in front of, like, as we're walking in the facility, being really engaging and really enthusiastic. If it's 6 in the morning and they're kind of getting the sleep out of their eyes and we're about to max out or full sprint, man, you need to go right at it. And you need to get that person ready to go. Now, in terms of feedback, okay, well, and not everyone's going to respond every way to all your style of feedback. And if it is, I have a lot of friction with that person, it's either I need to adjust to that person or I need to find the right person in that. So if I'm fortunate enough to have a staff working with me, I need to get them maybe more connected to them than me. But you have to really understand the feedback, the cueing, right? The, I have a novice in front of me. They don't really understand what's going on. You know, just given the broad strokes, maybe it's more external or going away from them. This dynamic of, I just need to get these like really simple things like an Olympic lift and keep it close, fast and deep on sprinting. Like make sure you are extending that back, back ankle, knee and hip, projecting your body towards the line in front of you or, or, 
or away from the line behind you. Or if we're doing something really nuanced, like a triplanar movement of move with fluidity and rhythm, just make it athletic. I want to see crisp, clean movement and like just giving them broad strokes of what we're hopefully looking for. Versus if I have a guy who's really preparing for that last year or specializing, like we got to get really into the weeds on that ankle did not turn the way we want it to, man. Or, <laughs> hey, like when we set up, it's ankle, knee, then hip. Like if you want knee, then ankle, like then that's a problem, man. Like that's why we got wonky ankles. That's why we don't look good, you know, and you got to get to the film and you got to go through all these other things. But the, the cueing, you go from this continuum of external simple to internal very very specific that helps it helps a lot because you're going to run into people that just don't get it and i you know this firsthand like the generic cue of do what you just did but make it look more like me is not a very good cue but it's yeah it's funny it lightens people lightens people's mood it definitely helps the situation because i know you guys are trying your absolute hardest and giving everything you have to do it correctly because that's just the way you're wired so bringing some levity to the situation and saying, remember how I did it? You know, try to be more like that, you know, that, or like do what you just did, just do it better next time. Like that always cracked a smile. And that always took someone as extremely serious and very locked in to do it a way that, like, okay, I'm gonna give it, I'm gonna give it another go. It's like not the end of the world if I miss a rap or I didn't do it perfectly. On the other end, the guy doesn't care. You gotta give some sort of like win, you know, like, all right, like just try to touch your head to the ceiling when you're jumping or, hey, when you're pulling that bar, just, you know, keep your hips down below your knee, below your knees as long as possible or something right generic that helps them really understand that they're really, really making progress. Now, the last part is focus. And one of the things that you find is sustainably maintaining focus throughout a workout. So, for example, it would be Army. Uh, we are overly sympathetic from pretty much 6 a.m. formation till 2.30 when they come up to your weight room. And one of the things that we tried to do to engage them longer was doing something parasympathetic. And that's why we included breathing, that we saw the tail end of guys' ability to maintain focus and enthusiasm dropped off. Uh, and how do we track that? We look at maybe execution and performance towards the end, missing reps towards the end of a workout, coaches having a lot more confrontation at, at the latter part of the workout. So can we do anything from a psychological or CNS perspective, parasympathetic, sympathetic? Can we do anything from a nutritional perspective? Do we have enough enough carbohydrates in the system, enough amino acids in the system to maintain? So these are all physiological things. But then again, from a strategic logistics thing of, Man, if you're going to have to do really complicated, intricate things at the end, as opposed to get in that leg press, knock out 50 reps, you got this. It's just effort and heart at this point. Week, like week four of a training block, Friday of the training block, the end of the workout, you're just going to do something hard and you're going to do it with something really easy, but you're going to have to grind through it. You know, that's all strategic, right? The continuum of going from a compound, multi-joint, high rate of force development movement early to isolation open kinetic chain movement later, that's, that's, that's a strategy and that's important to maintain. You know, if they did lose focus, would it be catastrophic if they were doing the exercise kind of thing and you set up for that? You have a track and field athlete that's preparing for the Olympics. You have a lot more leverage to say, we only got to do these three things, but it's going to be a lot of sets and you're going to have to give great focus throughout the entire of the workout because they have more skin in the game. There's more direct output, right? That level of competitive focus is hard to replicate and it's a lot of a lot of power for you the coach to say 
this is going to be a 90-minute grinder of a session, and we're going to do 10 sets of three on, on snatch. We're going to do 10 sets of three on step up, and then we're going to finish off with five sets of eight on Nordics. And it's going to take us 90 minutes because you're so damn fast, which you take forever to recover, but you got to lock in. you got to lock in. And they get to that sixth, seventh set, and they'll like start to lose interest. I was like, let's go. This is your fucking goal. Like that kind of thing. And you got 100 million people watching you on TV. Like, what are you going to do? Like, that is the power and authority there. But focus is something that you need to be able to get to that person in the moment. You need to understand with the dynamics at play. You don't have as much ability to leverage Hey, there's a lot more at stake here in January for a September game, uh, but there is a lot at stake for someone on the final week of prep going into a competition where they're in a speedo on stage. Like, can't eat a single carb. You can't have a calorie over 800 calories based off a predetermined goal. You got to get six training sessions in. Every rep has got to be perfect and locked in. Don't miss your cardio. Like, that level of focus is very reserved for small windows. You just need to capitalize on that. Yeah, it's just pulling the right levers at the right time with the right people, which which can definitely be hard in those larger groups as well. No doubt. No so doubt. if you can master that, hats off to you. Yeah, awesome, right? That's what we're wearing right now. Gotta get, I got to just get a hat that just says coach. Yeah. <laughs> then, you know, when you, when you turn it backwards, that's when you're just like the motivator guy. Yeah, I'm just cool, man. I'm cool to yeah, him, man. It just says cool, cool on the back. Yeah, yeah cool, man. I'm, I'm chill, man. Yeah, that'd be sweet. <laughs> Awesome, man. We got, we got, I, I've already gotten Rob's done. So if you guys are overwhelmed, stressed and anxious while listening to this in your car ride into work, hopefully knocking out a Zen pouch and, and probably 200 milligrams of caffeine. Yes, you wait. I'm just, yeah, I'm just telling you, man, you're about to throw up uncontrollably from the level of information Rob's coming in. So hopefully we're setting the stage for what it takes to be a pH member here. Yeah, definitely set the bar high. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Thank you, Corey. All right. Thanks, Tim. See ya. What's up, Rob? How we doing, man? All right, buddy. Good morning. Doing okay. Uh, yeah, here we go. So we're talking Erickson's model. One of the things that I think is going to be a foundation for creating a great session, which is probably one of the more overlooked and undervalued things in terms of strength conditioning, at least in my opinion. So I want to talk about really specifically, how are you looking at your sessions from a setup, a logistics, from the point of the program, from how challenging you should be, from how you're going to cue it, how you're going to give feedback? How are you looking at a session to make sure that is optimized in every single way possible? So I think a great place to start is kind of even with the warm-up, right? Like, you know, essentially we're, we're talking about setting them up for success and one of the interesting things with some of the neurotransmitter stuff is that you can actually start that process like in your warm-up, right? Like, you know, you can you can even start a little earlier to optimize circadian timing with time since being awake with, with peak performance. But you know, really you're you're looking at what do we what does this particular person respond well to? And you know, if you look at the different camps and everything, you've got like the oh, you need to foam roll, then do mobility work and reduce tension and all that other stuff. And then you've got, no, you should just do explosive stuff, ramp up your nervous system, and then well, the best way to prepare is like lighter pump work. And then you got some people who just do everything, right? And and each each of those profiles kind of has a has a different need in terms of what can really get them juiced up for a session. So I think once you've established that, then you can actually really get into like your obviously your program design, but but other needs and even communication styles with those those profiles. 
with that being said, you know, what front end information are you gathering with your athletes before you start to program to help really engineer what you just described from, is it, hey, I need to get them, I need to get a lot of volume or density in the warm up to get them pumped up and ready to go. I need to do something fast, athletic. I need to just slow build. Like what, what information are you gathering on maybe an initial inventory or just initial conversation on them to best optimize that ramp or that even session overall? Yeah. So there, you know, there's a few different tests you can use. There's like the, the Cloninger uh, character and temperament index. There's the Braverman test. If you're smart enough, you could probably even use like an Enneagram and even there's like a, I think her name's Gretchen Rubin. I forget the, the, the types that she laid out, but you know, each one of those folks is, is geared toward different things. So if you're, you know, if you haven't been trained in how to use Braverman or some of these other ones, there's very simple ones that you can, you can utilize and even like the Chinese medicine style. So that's kind of where I go first. And you know, most of the time we just think about that in terms of like sets and reps, but that stuff can can have a big influence on nutrition, on supplementation, and and even in particular if you're, you know, if it's a good skill set of yours as a coach, how you communicate, right? Because how you would communicate with a with a dopamine dominant guy who's who appears a bit lackadaisical versus how you would communicate with somebody who's got high anxiety on SSRIs and how you program those workouts is going to be very different, you know, because a lot of those some of the some of the higher dopamine profiles actually probably more of them than not you know you see them walk into the weight room and they're they're just kind of they kind of look lazy and then once they're warmed up these guys can put the hammer down and just freaking go you know and mm. if i if i give an a1 a2 pairing to a uh, somebody on that closer to the serotonin into the spectrum it's just too much <laughs> right mm. so you know, like you got like single station pairings, more sets. So there's a lot of those things that are that are really valuable communication tools. Even if you think it's just total BS in terms of the programming side, the more you can learn about what those chemicals do to the brain and what those really personality types look like, it can really help with your with your communication and and make that way more effective. Yeah. So let's dive a little bit more into the. I guess big neurotransmitters associated with training. And I mean, I know we got catecholamines in there as well, but it, it appears that the big four are going to be more of the acetylcholine, dopamine, pre, serotonin, GABA, depending on what the emphasis of the workout is, either intra-workout, later in the workout, or post-workout. Can you walk us through those big four neurotransmitters? And if I missed any, please add more. And how we'll, we'll just start with those neurotransmitters, and we'll talk about how that relates to training. Yeah, awesome. So there's there is two others that you can look at that like some of the different tests will include uh, glutamate and even um, epinephrine, norepinephrine, or adrenaline, noradrenaline. So th those are those are in there too and have. If you get good enough, you can even use incorporate those two uh, neurotransmitters on something like the Braverman that doesn't actually show you that data. But really, you know, when when we boil down to it, if you look at you know Charles always said strength training was on a continuum, right? So you, you've got the high intensity and lower repetitions higher percentage of 1RM, and then on the other end, you've obviously got, you know, lower percentage. So if you look at it that way, and you, you put dopamine on one side and you put serotonin on the other side, so your, your high intensity, and I think the, the easiest way to characterize the higher dopamine guys are the west side barbell personalities, right? I, I think um, if, you, if anybody's ever heard Ed Cohn and Louis Simmons speak, those are two very opposite ends of that intensity spectrum, right? Ed Cohen would program his stuff months in advance and would never miss a rep, never miss a weight. Whereas like Westside, right? We we literally are changing almost <laughs> several things every session uh, because the intensity 
necessitates that change in an exerciser so you don't just so you don't fry so so we got that right you got higher dopamine you're looking at at more intensity these, these guys are like just on or off so you, you'll warm them up a little different they they don't like to push too hard in the first few minutes of their workout but once they're in like they go right they just need to ramp up their nervous system before they start training and then so you move kind of down to the next one you're you're looking at acetylcholine and then you can sort of get to adrenaline and glutamate and uh, GABA and, and serotonin so those acetylcholine folks are tend to be a bit more feel oriented they're not as sensation oriented as the GABA serotonin end of the spectrum but these are the people that essentially right acetylcholine kind of helps you your brain process information so with these guys you want to have a, a little bit more dynamicism throughout your session right so you may have a a jump um or a, a, a speed strength a strength speed and a max strength type of exercise you know all, all in one session whereas if you're more of a dopamine person you're going to do six to 12 sets of snatch pulls and then like that's your exercise and maybe a few sets of squats too right but if you're looking at those acetylcholine folks you may go from jumps to power snatches to one and a quarter front squats and then down to leg curls for functional hypertrophy because they they can thrive on that that slight amount of variation and they need to see that a little bit more within a session but then you can also to to accommodate that variety in people who aren't looking for massive performance improvements right for for the average joe those people respond tend to respond really well to like rep schemes so to you know like a 10 8 8 6 6 8 type of rep scheme where it's not just 8 to 12 those those types of schemes or changing tempos are are really useful for that kind of person because it just gives them something to stay focused on now with that being said and you're looking at i got an inventory of what kind of personality or what kind of neurotransmitter profile this person exhibits one of the things that you probably have encouraged yourself much like a any kind of personality trait test like a myers-briggs is a lot of times these are very situationally dependent and that has this like fluctuating thing. So, you know, walk the listeners through this front end collection, whether it's say it's a Braverman or some of the others you mentioned. And then from there, it's knowing, depending on the type of workout or what's going to happen here in the future, that you're going to react a certain way to them with something that they're not really comfortable with or how they're really in a position where you know that you need to do this, but it's not in, in line or synergy with what I found on the front end. You know, walk us through that reaction to them getting off their normal neurotype and based off of either planned stress or maybe a just complete anomaly that you weren't expecting. Yeah, you know, so there's, it's interesting you say that about the very situational aspects, right? Because there's even, there's even a combination of scores that is its own profile that is basically like a chameleon yeah. that will, you know, that will be very outgoing in a room with outgoing people, or that can also be very shy. And that even kind of has its own wants and needs, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting. And, but if we look at trying to get somebody who needs, you know, heavy explosive strength, that is not where their profile scores say, well, they don't respond well to that. A lot of it is really kind of a volume thing right because when we when we look at deloading kind of like the eastern Bloc countries would deload is they would just really cut back on sets you would never really take away 
effort or intensity, right? Is you just go from six sets of four to six to two to three sets. Because it's not so much the uh, the two to three that just completely destroys you. It's how much of that you have to do. So, you know, one of those things is where like the, the dopamine guy might be eight to 10 sets of, you know, triples on a snatch pull heavy. If we start to push towards that, towards the GABA serotonin side, that guy or that, that lady might do three or four sets of that, right? They may have a couple of different exercises that still drive us towards that strength explosive qualities. They just can't handle that that large amount of volume, right? Whereas like, you know, the dopamine guy might have two workouts each week that are snatch pull types of exercises with lots of sets. Whereas you start to shift to the right, you might get one heavy session, one fast session. You might start working towards the the high low models, Charlie Francis style, right? Because you know they can't recover from uh, a high intensity session if you don't give them some low intensity re restorative work. So you've got those just just seeing the numbers of the scores. Even if you didn't lump anyone into a profile, you know if you're looking at those scores and you know, all right, dopamine higher intensity, acetylcholine is a bit more volume and variation. GABA is kind of basically your ability to recover from higher intensity work. So lots of times you'll run into high dopamine, low GABA, right? So that tells you, well, that person loves high intensity work. They want to to drive that quality, but you know they can't recover from it. So you're not going to start them with, you know, six to eight sets. You might have to ease them in, maybe have a slightly higher frequency of much lower volume. So just by understanding what those qualities do to personality type, brain chemistry, and, and what somebody sort of thrives towards, even if you don't lump them into profiles, you can, it can guide your program selection of, all right, we're going to do this intensity work because I know they need it as, as their coach, but I also know they can't recover from it because of that GABA issue. So we're going to dial back on the number of sets. Yeah. So going back into Erickson's, it's really broken up into four quadrants, this challenge, focus, feedback, and cueing. And you kind of adjust based off of the either simplicity of the the exercise or the workout all the way to the complicated or even to the other end of the spectrum, complex style of the workout. And then even like stuff like intensity or duration. Essentially, you just got to go, okay, like they're going to do a set of 24 reps and we know that's going to be really challenging. So how do I adjust my enthusiasm or energy in getting them prepared to do that? But with that being said, in regards to focus, and I'm, I'm assuming there's going to be a pretty strong relationship with someone who's pumping out a lot of dopamine and then potentially a lot of adrenaline or, or epinephrine and then getting into the other level of a drop in blood glucose. How do you look at these dynamics and knowing that we need to maintain focus because risk goes up when focus goes down, you know, that level of sustained thing, is it a, all right, this person's a dopamine type and I got to get longer rest periods or this person's an acetylcholine type, so they're going to get bored easily. So I got to do things that keep them engaged that are going to be beneficial, but not necessarily taxing, like a snatch pull with the stretch, or a, I'm going to do a low amplitude jump paired up with a, a big high threshold movement pattern. Like, how are you walking through this like neurotype or this person that has specific neurotransmitters that are dominant with, I need to figure out ways creatively to maintain focus throughout the entirety of that 60 minute session. And so you know, on a huge point of keeping them engaged, right? That is a big one. And I think everybody at some point has either had a, you know, a gen pop client or even one of your athletes who, you know, they could be working as hard as you want them to work. 
and that two minute rest or that hundred second rest is just too much for that person. You know, they, they get lost or they got to go, they go start checking their phone, right. Just because they're, they're not there, but those guys or those, those females can, can put the work in with those shorter rest intervals. So it's, it's really interesting. And that's where you start to get to that moving one step past acetylcholine and a little bit closer towards that adrenaline or adrenaline glutamate type of, uh, of edge where they're just, you know, like they're just kind of twitchy, right? They're just ready to go. So keeping them engaged is huge. And that's why with, with that, that section, even the acetylcholine and up to that adrenaline section, I think the repetition change, right? We did six last set. Now we're going to do four of the set or, you know, if it's hypertrophy, eight, eight, ten, eight, ten, twelve or whatever, right? That, that small change can, can keep them engaged and even tempo changes or, Isometric changes, four second hold, then a three second hold, then a two second hold, each rep, right? We're just getting a little bit different, but there's always something for them to stay focused on, especially if you're giving them a long rest break. Mm. And, you know, with those, with those higher intensity parts of the spectrum, that dopamine towards dopamine, your, what should keep them engaged is hitting the numbers. So that's where that rest interval tends to to work in everyone's favor, right? Because with that person, you take that rest away and they start having to drop weight. That's a, you know, that's an effect on that person, right? And, and but then you also have some of those things come in like, um, which are more the people like me, which are very high dopamine and high GABA, um, which is great because they thrive on the intensity and you can recover from it. But that, there's also another side to that where it's like, if you, that's the person that'll put their face through a wall to get better, right? Because that dopamine level, it's not so much a, a lot of people really think it's like a motivation molecule, but it's more of a, it drives you to, it places importance on things, right? Which I guess kind of is motivation, but it, the brain will see hitting those reps, hitting that weight for those reps. It will perceive that and drive importance towards that. And that's what then facilitates more of the motivation. So it, those guys thrive and have that that yearning to accomplish that goal because it is, is then wired in them, right? Whereas the, you start to shift towards the other thing, it becomes more sensation oriented. If they don't feel it, it's not worth it. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, the, those, those parts of the span, most people have a little bit of each one of those, right? So it, it really becomes starting to weigh your options. And then if you're using something like undulating periodization, where, you know, you're going to have a volume dominant, phase and a and an intensity dominant phase after that then you can you can still you know partner that right if i've got somebody that's fairly balanced they're usually never perfectly balanced right so if they're you see their intensity dominance is a little bit more than their their acetylcholine right so but that may influence your your volume of sets in the intensity because that gap is for so you can even use those in your your undulating periodizations purely in a fairly balanced context. So, so everybody's not really black and white. 99% of people are in that gray area. And by understanding those small differences in what each one of those scores mean, you can, it really helps the interpretation of it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, in regards to the next component of this model, looking at the challenge, there's, there. I mean, weightlifting is always a really fun one for me to kind of leverage here, but there is a tonnage approach that most weightlifting camps will start to adhere to. And how can we accrue as much tonnage over a macro cycle or quadrennial cycle? And hopefully we'll reach higher levels each phase of this. 
looking at, though, the rate-limiting step is your recovery levels between individual sets. And one way is that a Bulgarian model might do, instead of trying to go these marathon sessions, they'll just break it up into eight sessions. Or if you look at it through a more Chinese weightlifting model, they'll look at it between this idea of we're going to get volume on the back end, or this person is very elastic, we're going to get volume within the main session. With that being said, do you find that certain neurotypes have a poor a poor ability to recover from either high volume or higher intensity? And I know that probably feels like very similar to the way you describe it, but I want to like clarify the the response to that individual work at working set will have a second order of impacting your rate of recovery. And, you know, a dopamine type I'm assuming would be a longer recovery and density would go down. And your response to that would be, we need to increase frequency or on another note, if we have an acetylcholine type that might recover faster, but maybe gets bored quicker. And we have these, all those variations that we're pleading from the set from that first a one to X2, you know, that kind of like setup, you know, what is your thought process on this neurotype and their response from a, a fatigue standpoint and how well they recover in a workout in regards to density management and frequency management? So, you know, when you, when you start to get into that, I think it, it, the density frequency component becomes probably one of the most important steps in all of that, right? Because if you, if you've got to cut the volume down because they can't, recover from the intensity and the you know strength speed types of of work that you know they need well then you've got to adjust the frequency to get that total tonnage type of component in there because you can you mean you can very easily get enough total tonnage for the week on three to four sets a day and if you're all you know if you're doing that then you're going to be if you use reps in reserve or any or reps in the tank whatever you want to call it you know those guys might be hitting more repetitions at 75 to 80 percent maybe every single day types of thing where you're Olympic lifting or in some sort of Olympic movement almost every single session, but it's more speed dependent rather than, than load dependent in the session. So then you're going to accumulate the tonnage for the week. Whereas you get that, that dopamine type of person that can handle six, eight, 10 sets of that one, you know, power snatch, snatch, pull type of exercise, then their, their frequency is going to adjust for the training week, right? For that micro cycle. So they may do eight sets of snatch pulls, followed by some front squats with an explosive tempo. And then that next day may be more even functional hypertrophy, depending on what they need. They may not need to see that strength speed quality again as soon because of the, that number of sets. You know, obviously now as that number of sets drops, that second session, you know, might have to be another snatch pull type of movement, right? Or maybe even a, a push jerk or something, but something that's strength speed, not quite speed strength on the, on the side of the continuum. But by adjusting that frequency, then you're you're really able to start to manipulate that that total tonnage, and not try to get it in all at once. And I think that's a that's a lesson that I don't think a lot of people actually pick up on from the Bulgarian models, right? It's like they would do those two, three, sometimes four sessions a day, and maybe only do like six sets or something of of each one of those Olympic lifts. You know, it's like it's a, a really about a thirty minute session. From most of the stuff that I've read, these aren't marathon sessions. They come in, they max out, they leave, they come back, they max out, they leave. Um, you know, so it, once you start to get that dialed in, that that adjustment of frequency is is clutch in this thing because you you really can not push somebody to that to their limit in terms of intensity and recovery just by adjusting that frequency. And like, like for for my own training, right, with my back issue, that's 
the the biggest thing that I've had to adjust is going from like a Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday split, arms once a week, legs, you know, two days, pushing a or hinging a, a squat, and then another like chest and back day. Whereas now I'm training six to seven days a week because my intensity has to be lower with the movements I can handle. And I'm still, you know, I think my hypertrophy has even gone up, not quite as strong because I can't push the intensity, but you know, that just that simple adjustment in frequency is you can, it can really, it's a really good tool to be able to utilize. I don't know if you have a question on that and I'm just going to get me off track here, which apologize to the listeners. Do you find when someone incurs an injury that their profile for neurotransmitters alters? I think it definitely can. I mean, that, that obviously that can have like, I mean, another perfect example, right? I, I, once I got there, I thrived on being one of the bigger, stronger guys in the room, you know, which I got to that point, like most of the seminars, there weren't a lot of people bigger than me. But when I first started, I was like the scrawniest guy in the room, you know, and, and like that really messes with your head. You know, now I'm like dad bods creeping in and kind of like soft, that melted candle, <laughs> that melted candle look and, you know, time, you take your shirt off around Charles, man. <laughs> you know, and like to a certain extent, you're for, for people who love the weight room. That is like for me, that was a part of my identity. You know, people ask me what I do. Like, ah, I'm a strongman competitor and a strength coach. You know, like sometimes that strongman competitor would be the first thing I would say. Um, and now like that is not part of my identity anymore at all. And that has dramatically changed. Uh, what I feel like I can thrive upon in the weight room. I don't love my training as much as I used to because I really want that heavy weight, but I really love not having, you know, muscle spasms 20, 24 seven. So <laughs> you, you got to adjust and make it survivable, you know. You know, probably organically creates more of a direction of energy and outletting towards understanding neurochemistry and biochemistry and all sorts of things that are really hard to learn. So instead of like dive diverting that energy and focus towards your training. Now you're looking at other outlets, which, you know, it's going somewhere. The last question I have on this model, and I'm going to have a fun little end part. So I like, I like doing the, the end of fire with you. I think it's fun. I think it's a fun one. You do really well with it, but in regards to this idea of feedback and looking at it from, I'm going to cue them or give them feedback, whether it's positive encouragement or negative reinforcement, which is a nice way of saying you didn't do that well. You know, how are you kind of building some sort of reference or frame framework for connecting to your clients and athletes based off of their neurotype? And maybe you're tying that into what you're doing or is it an overall strategy? Yeah, it's uh, so it kind of goes back to that communication strategy and uh, and especially how clients, if we like, look at athletes in terms of like Olympic weightlifting or things like that, and how you can teach them the lift. So uh, if you, you know, obviously we've got the the Soviet Russian type system versus the Chinese system, right, are, are probably the most distinctively different. Um, you know, whereas the Russian system, like, oh, you're weak at mid knee of your snatch pull. All right, set the blocks bars at mid knee. You're going to get crazy strong from mid knee. But then you look at the at the Chinese side, it's very rhythmic, teaching rhythm and, and flow and, and speed. So you have, you know, those ways of teaching somebody. If you're if you go through and do the normal, you know, your normal Olympic weightlifting technical teaching, the dopamine guy is not going to enjoy Olymp learning Olympic weightlifting with empty bars, you know, the way we would learn it at a, a seminar type of thing. So you take that that Russian 
Soviet type of approach where, all right, I'm going to teach them, you know, the, the high shrug, hip shrug first or wherever they, where they lack, right? I'm going to work top down or bottom up depending on where they're weak or where their biggest dysfunction is. But then if you shift towards that other side of the spectrum, doing things like a, a 10 second concentric with a 10 second eccentric on a muscle snatch, for example, is a tremendously useful tool to teach that, that side of the spectrum that thrives on feel because that's how they'll connect to those exercises. And I think that's really the two biggest differences, the, the most, the, the biggest contrast is that you've got that person well like, oh, I, I really feel my, my, my eyelid when I do my biceps curl, you know, and like half the time these people are weak as crap anyway. Because you're doing it wrong, ma'am. <laughs> ma'am, that, that's not where you should feel it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like you, we've all dealt with those. In terms I'm of like, athletes, I shouldn't type that, sir, sir, that's not where you should feel it. I should say that. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow whoever you whoever don't, doing it wrong, they don't they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> so, so, I was talking about, but I, I think those yeah. two forms of communication and and being able to shift from that you know ten up ten down clean and snatch type of teaching method to the settlement blocks perfect strength in that section that's malfunctioning, and they'll get better and they'll enjoy it. Yeah. Well, I guess I had another question there, but I don't want to go long because I think it's gonna be. It's a good question, but either way, I'll hold it off. All right, now I want to do a rapid fire, and I want you to pick the dominant neurotransmitter for some folks that we have a relationship with, and they probably won't listen to this, so probably doesn't even <laughs> matter. So you say what you feel is necessary, and or you say feel like what you think. The other part is no cop outs, no hybrid, or no combination neurotransmitter. You got to pick one. All right, you ready? Yep, Charles. In between dopamine and acetylcholine. No, no, no. It's got to be one. <laughs> got to be one. Probably dopamine. dopamine. Yeah, of course. Yeah, for sure. Preston Green. Ooh, um, I think maybe GABA. Okay. Pre uh, Dave Lawrence. Acetylcholine. Ben Prentice. Loves bodybuilding. Acetylcholine. Okay. Tim Karen. That's me. I want to say acetylcholine, but... I think you're closer to dopamine. Yeah, if I had to pick one, Will Greenberg. A little more cerebral, probably closer to GABA. GABA. Sean Hayes. Dopamine. Corey Hobbs. GABA. Eric Schmidt. Theocholine. Vince Ronda. Oh. Theocholine. Okay. I think, that I think that covers it, man. Anyone else you want to just throw a neurotype into? Uh, I always dreamed of saying what their neurotransmitter profile was. <laughs> I I think for understanding purposes, Louis and Ed Cohn are great examples, right? Yeah. Louis, dopamine, Ed Cohn, probably GABA. Uh, that's just the to, continuum. Yeah, that's yeah. a spectrum of neurotype. Yeah, for sure. Well, <laughs> Rob, man, thank you so much, man. This is awesome. This is really cool. I'm just stoked on the direction you took it because it was definitely a... A one that you're like, yeah, no, like I, I get the model, but I'm really more interested in this aspect. But it's also cool to see how you're thinking about that and and how these models. You might even have heard of it, but they're definitely interconnected in a lot of ways. So thank you for that, man. You know, you can very easily incorporate this with that model. You know, like there's there's a lot of relevance there for sure. Absolutely. So awesome, Rob. Well, appreciate you, man. I will plug, Rob. You got some stuff going right now between your membership platform, right? You want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, so the membership platform is at closing in on the end of the first quarter. We're doing like 
quarterly curriculums, so kind of batched work. We've got advanced gen pop fat loss, basically a 12-week program, walking you through that Q&A style. We're doing a, there's a circadian light combination. So basically there's a new video each week, a training component, a nutrition component, and then a circadian or biohacking or, you know, whatever you want to call that stuff. And then we round out the the weekly videos for the month with just Q and A's based on really anything, but you know, the, the videos and everything that that's rolled in. So we got that. It's uh, outlawstrength.thinkific.com and get on there, get signed up. Quarter one of 2024 is rolling out soon. Right. Well, you heard it, guys. Get on that. That's a really good resource. And I mean, this is just a just a, a skosh of what you're going to get with Rob. So you want to get the full package, make sure you get on there. And uh, I'll put the link in our podcast notes as well as our uh, webinar, webinar post. So thank you, Rob. I really appreciate the time, man. Yeah, I appreciate it, buddy. This is great. A lot to unpack here. As you start to break down, really what you need to do after this episode is start to think about when you're organizing a session, how it's going to be not only from sets and reps, but from the execution between you and your staff. If you have a staff, multiple people, this is more important. If it's just you by yourself, still really important because how are you holding yourself to the standard that you know that you need to as you're working with clients and athletes? Really dive into the resources and articles we have listed within the module. You're going to take a lot from just overall learning more about Erickson's model, as well as really structuring your other components, the the quote unquote softer skills, the understanding the nuance of of the human mind and psychology, the complexity of that which is humans and working with them. Not easy to do, but the more reps, the more focus, the better you become at it. So just about work ethic and consistency and fighting like hell to have a really good session each day. Become a member of PH Podcast. You will not regret that decision. All right, we'll see you guys next week.